Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. It's awesome to be here with you again. I hope you've been having a great week. For new guests, I'm Simon Hill, your host. And on this show, I bring you into conversations that I have with incredible people from all walks of lives, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, activists, chefs, business owners, people who have overcome chronic illness and more, covering everything from inspiring stories, nutritional science, and often looking at things in a different light. Each episode comes direct from the studio to your earbuds to encourage us all to look within, delve deep into our mind, challenge our belief systems, and ultimately inspire us to take action spiritually, mentally, and physically. This episode is another absolute ripper. Dr. Renee Thomas is an Australian doctor who lives in Loma Linda, one of the Blue Zone populations in California, studied by Dan Butner, along with a bunch of other research teams. Not only does this population display longevity, with most people living well into their 90s and even 100s, but it's almost the perfect randomized controlled trial. Within the population, there are omnivores, pescatarians, vegetarians, and vegans. And the thing that makes it almost like a randomized controlled trial is that all of these people are health conscious. They don't smoke or drink. So it removes these variables and there's over 90 odd thousand people in this population that are being studied. On top of that, the omnivores only eat about 4% of their calories from meat. So you are left with a study that is really able to clarify the difference in health outcomes associated with the slightly different dietary patterns that exist in this population. Imagine if these studies were able to show differences between vegans and omnivores who've led healthy lives and ate very little meat. That would be pretty comprehensive, wouldn't it? You'll hear how the research findings go in this episode. Before we hear from Renee, I want to quickly talk about prebiotics. A prebiotic is classified as anything that feeds our bacteria and results in positive changes to our gut microbiome. This includes some forms of fiber, otherwise known as prebiotic fiber, but also includes various phytonutrients, resistant starch, and and other molecules in our food that feed this bacteria. We're finding out more and more about this each year as new science comes out and our overall understanding of the gut evolves. But overall, the important thing to understand with prebiotics is that they feed our healthy gut bacteria. They are the food which our gut bacteria feast on. And then during this process of feasting, very healthful metabolites or byproducts are produced, like short-chain fatty acids, which then interact with other species of bacteria and also other cells in our colon. This process has tremendous benefits, particularly with regards to maintaining a healthy gut wall and permeability, as well as a regulation of our immune system. So, Do we need to take prebiotic supplements or worry about the individual types of prebiotics like inulin, for example, and what foods to get each from? Well, in short, not really. That can get a little complex and for most people is completely irrelevant unless you're a nutrition nerd like me and you just want to know. Just eat a diverse range of plants and by doing this, you will consume many different types of prebiotics, which then help feed specific bacteria in your gut. If you mono eat or have an animal focused diet, you are reducing your capacity 
to feed a diverse range of bacteria. And bacteria diversity is strongly linked to overall health outcomes. The only caveat to this is someone who's doing a low FODMAP diet to help with IBS. A low FODMAP diet is a way to help identify any trigger foods in your diet. But it's important to note that a low FODMAP diet removes a lot of prebiotics and thus it is only ever meant to be a short-term thing. Mini science lesson ticked off and I act like it's a chore, but it's true. I mean, I am a nutrition nerd and I often find myself turning minutes into hours after going super deep into literature searches on this stuff. So I find it fascinating to talk about. Anyway, that's enough from me rambling on. Next week, I think I'm going to lead with an introduction about why the Chris Cresser and Joel Kahn debate on Joe Rogan needs further explanation. If you've listened to that podcast, you will know what I mean. And if you haven't, save yourself the four hours of confusion and wait for my recap. I've reviewed all of the studies and I certainly have a few things to chime in with. Happy days. Okay, friends, let's do this. Put your hands together. You can actually clap if you want for Dr. Renee Thomas. Dr. Renee Thomas, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's awesome to to be able to connect while you're back in Australia here for the Doctors for Nutrition conference. Mm-hmm. And you're actually one of the speakers. You've already spoken at the event. You've done, you had two, two speeches, right? I do. So I had the one yesterday that you're referring to. That was my sort of main solo talk talking about living and working in the blue zone, specifically Loma Linda, California. And then later today, I am part of a panel with uh, Dr. Scott Stoll and Joel Craddock, and we're talking about athletes and nutrition. Okay. And obviously, I think the listeners can probably hear you have an Australian accent. Mm-hmm. You live in Loma Linda now in California, but where where are you from? Where, where were you born? Sure. So uh, I was actually born in Perth in Western Australia. So I don't know. I presume you have a lot of international listeners. Most people have never heard of Perth. It's like way, way, way on the West Coast. The standard joke is end of the world doesn't really matter. Nothing comes to Perth. (laughs) Um, But no, I loved it. Grew up there. Uh, When I was 18, I moved to the East Coast in Melbourne. I kind of said that I was going to university. Uh, I was really just moving there because I thought it was an awesome city. And then it is a great city. (laughs) I actually did secretly apply for universities, but I didn't have an offer at the time and just kind of was optimistic that I was going to get one, but I did. So it all worked out. Okay. But uh, I moved there not knowing. Okay. And you've got a a huge interest now in, in lifestyle medicine Mm -hmm. and plant, the role that plant-based nutrition plays in preventing and, and managing chronic disease, things like that. But where did all of that start for you? Like, how did you become interested in the first place, I guess, being a doctor, becoming a doctor? And where along the line did you start to understand the importance of food in medicine? Sure. So my story actually starts really, really early in my life. I've touched on it a bit previously and yesterday, but basically when I was five years old, unfortunately in his early thirties, my father was diagnosed with cancer, which is really young considering like I'll date myself, but I've just turned 30 and I could not imagine, you know, having a cancer diagnosis in the next few years. That would just be mind blowing. So my father had cancer, did the typical thing, went to an oncologist. And I literally have no idea because in the early nineties, which is when this was, 
plant-based diets and nutrition in health wasn't really, it's, you know, it's definitely grown and it's amazing to see how much it's growing really wasn't a thing back then. But, uh, his oncologist was very familiar with, um, kind of the early research then of red meat and colorectal cancer. Colorectal cancer is a really common secondary cancer. My dad had testicular cancer. And so he was, he, he knew he had a chance of potentially developing this if he didn't change his diet. Exactly. Within five to 10 years of having a primary testicular cancer, it's very common to have a secondary colon cancer. And this oncologist knew that research. And he said to my dad, if you want to see your daughter graduate from high school, I highly recommend you stop eating red meat. It's great advice. Great. Yeah. It's like, for me, I'm just like, whoever you are, I want to find this oncologist and give him the biggest hug in the world. So my dad was kind of like, why have I never heard this before? Like, this isn't something commonly going around. Um, it's actually really sad because the year previously I lost an uncle to colon cancer. And so it was like, oh, I wish we knew that then. So my dad's a massive book nerd, went to the library. I think he must have read every single book in the library and managed to stumble across the likes of many of the names we know, Dr. Dean Ornish, Caldwell Esselstyn, Nathan Pritikin, John McDougall, Neil Barnard, and found all their research as well as the Adventist health studies. And when you read the Adventist health studies, it's borderline mind-blowing if you have never come across this research before, because almost every health condition, there is a stepwise progression of illness the more you move away from a plant-based diet. It's literally like, it looks like they've made up some of the data. It's so And these are big, big populations. Humongous. Studies, right? humo- like with 90,000 plus. For sure. So these have been going on for ages. The Adventist Health Study, I'm just trying to say, I know that I've got it written down how many participants they had, but thousands. Now, look, we're talking like 40, 70,000 people involved in these studies without trying to go too off track from my story. But the reason they study Adventists is it takes away a lot of the confounding factors in other cohort studies looking at nutrition. Based on the Seventh-day Adventist uh, faith-based, most of them don't smoke. They don't drink caffeine. They don't drink alcohol. They are considered healthy living, low meat consuming society at large. They eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. They're physically active, spiritual, all the um, family and community connections. But what differs is their diet. About 50% are vegetarian or vegan or plant-based, whatever term you like, and 50% are So it's like this perfect, almost like randomized controlled trial with, you know, all of those other variables. Controlled for. Controlled. Exactly. Exactly. So it just sets up this beautiful cohort study. So my dad stumbled across this research and basically was one of those people, not many people, but you know, the ones that just go... I think they referred to it yesterday as like cold tofurkey. That was dad. Like milk was in the bin, meat was out of the house. Like just. And this was like early 90s, right? This was 1994. Okay. So it did well. I mean, finding that information back then was even, was definitely harder than it would be today. Oh, like he was going through like filing cabinets of studies to read them. It was like, you know, you couldn't just go on the internet, go on PubMed. Like we're so spoiled this day with research. So. Yeah, that's my that's the beginning of my story. So dad went plant-based overnight and I've always been a massive daddy's girl. And you have brothers and sisters. I don't. I'm an only okay. child. Part of it because my dad had testicular cancer. Sure. So that renders most people infertile. Yeah. So how did that how did his change, I guess, in his you know, dietary choices mm-hmm. and then affect what you were consuming? Well, it's funny because my parents always tease me because I went, Well, I don't want cancer either. And I'm not gonna eat anything dad doesn't eat. And so I remember my mum has told me she would serve me stuff up and I would go, what's dad having? Um, (laughs) Why is that different to my food? And I'm like, no, I want the same as daddy. And so it just became annoying to try and feed me other food because I just flat out refused it. So I transitioned to a plant-based diet at age five. 
And I have been that way ever since. And like I say to a lot of people worried about it, I'm a little short, but I managed to grow into a full-size healthy human with, you know, zero health. What was that like, you know, socially for you being being a kid through primary school, but then going into secondary school and, you know, people go through that stage of sort of wanting to fit in, yet you're doing something so different from everyone else, particularly at that time, there's a lot less information. There's definitely way less kids doing this. Um, was that challenging and, and how did you find that? It's kind of funny. I've always been, um, there's, there's nice words and mean words to describe it, but I like to go with uh, confident in my own beliefs. And um, it never really bothered me. I was like, well, this is what I do. And this is what I believe in. As a kid, it was, I guess my, my dad's main attitude that he brought me up with. He's like, this is what we do. This is what we believe. Um, not everyone believes the same thing as us. So just think everyone else is a good person. We just make different choices to them. Um, socially wise, I think it was just inbred in me that wherever I went, I just took food if I knew it wasn't going to be available. Um, I've never been a massive foodie. I'm more of the person that's like, let me eat so I can go run outside. Like it just wasn't a big deal for me. Um, it was very simple. I would say we ate probably a base, very similar to John McDougall's uh, starch solution. So it was very easy to go out and get a salad roll or a loaf of bread or, you know, oh, just give me fruit toast. Like it was quite easy. I never really, I, I don't remember having any struggles with it really as a kid. Or making a big fuss of it or anything like that. I was a kid. Yeah. As long as I was fed, I didn't yeah. really care. I guess like how did your dad's health mm-hmm. sort of, what was his journey like after changing his diet? Because I can imagine if I'm sort of assuming here that he was he was seeing some tangible benefits from mm-hmm. changing his diet and then you would have been, that, that's quite a powerful thing for a kid to see. Mm-hmm. It was pretty crazy. Um, I definitely have, you know, somewhat powerful memories. So one of the most important movements in oncology from a medical perspective is uh, the introduction of strong antiemetics or anti-nausea medication. Unfortunately for my dad, this was 97, I think was when Ondansetron came out. It's commonly known as Zofran or things like that. That didn't exist when my dad had chemotherapy. And what most people aren't aware of is chemotherapy is extremely nauseating and vomit inducing. And all I remember, my dad had this huge basin and he would just vomit and vomit and vomit and vomit. And he lost a tremendous amount of weight. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think he told me he got around 50 kilos or something like for a grown adult man, frightening. Um, So that part was all scary. But what he was noticing is he was a lot less sick than the other people in the, in the cancer ward. So you know, I, I do want to disclaim my dad didn't just heal with a plant-based diet. He did have chemotherapy. I think he had five courses or something like that, but he was significantly better than other people. And he said he was doing a lot of juices, like juice fasting, pureed vegetables, really like, I guess, very similar to what a lot of us think of as detox diets and things. And he did that. He recovered fairly fast as well. It was quite remarkable to see. He got the all clear fairly rapidly. And then, um, in Australia, I think it's seven years for his type of cancer. Uh, so after seven years, you're given the all clear and you no longer have to see an oncologist. So seven years later, he got his all clear. It's amazing. Super excited. I Honestly, my dad was most excited because he's really passionate about blood donations and he wasn't allowed to give it until he had his seven year all clear. And he was super excited. That was his most excited thing was that he could go and give blood. And on his seven day all clear, he went and gave what blood. What a milestone. Because he is uh, O negative. So the universal donor. So loves giving blood. So that was his most excitable part. But for me, just seeing that, we also have someone actually, it's kind of interesting. So just, sorry, just taking a step to answer the rest of your question. My dad will be 
65 this year. Wow. Cancer-free, never had a secondary, never had another health problem ever since. He is on zero medications, zero health problems. And I think you sort of, you you spoke to the fact that plant-based nutrition is not necessarily for, for everyone about mm-hmm. avoiding, you know, pharmaceutical and Western treatment. There mm-hmm. is a role in many cases for both and, mm-hmm. and, and using, you know, all of the amazing medications and treatments that we do have in certain mm-hmm. circumstances, which are life-saving, but yeah. then taking control of your health thereafter. Exactly. I totally agree with that. I think that we can't really ignore the evidence for prevention uh, for sure. And I'm definitely not going to rule that out. We have all the studies talking about preventing illness, but you know, not everyone was as lucky as I am to learn about it at age five and live my life that way, knowing that I'm preventing as many diseases as possible. A lot of people don't stumble across this research until they're already sick. And that's where I kind of, I like being this sort of mediating role between modern medicine and preventive therapies or lifestyle medicine, kind of getting the best of both worlds. Because for some people, I do feel, especially in emergency situations, there's a huge role. You know, if I break my leg, I really don't want a salad. Like, please pin my leg, give me painkillers, whatever you need in the short term. But then how can I optimize my my recovery? Or if you have a chronic disease, okay, you've been diagnosed. Now what can you do? Whether that's medical therapy or lifestyle or both. But then like you say, the long-term side of it, we know if you look at statistics, it's extremely common to have another cancer if you don't change your lifestyle. That's what I was going to say. We have a really close friend um, that had the same cancer as my dad. And my dad's a very non-controversial, non-confrontational person. And he just kind of had said on the side, you know, hey, like, have you thought about changing your diet? And was kind of brushed off, you know, the kind of standard of what's that going to do? I had cancer. I had chemo. I'm fine. Like I'm good. And I mean, a lot of people would assume that the cancer was completely you know, genetic fate. And it might be for some people, mm-hmm. but for others, there is lifestyle components. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Um, I remember reading the statistic of it really similarly about cancer and the level of prevention. It's it's really, really high. I, I cannot remember the number off the top of my head. I want to say it's like 80% they think is lifestyle contributed and only about 20% are genetics. Whereas I feel like probably the majority of the, the population, they think that 80% is genetics and 20% is lifestyle, but the lifestyle that everyone contributes is smoking. No one thinks about any other lifestyle factors. I think that's kind of where we're at at the moment. I think most people recognize smoking and lung cancer, yeah. but dietary factors contribute far more than smoking. A lot of the connections, um, the connection between dairy and prostate cancer is stronger than smoking and lung cancer. Yeah. Wow. So this friend of your, your father's, yeah. and she's, <laughs> Yeah. So unfortunately, so he had the identical cancer as my dad. So he had testicular cancer. It's usually isolated to one testicle, which is what they both had. And unfortunately, five years later, the friend then got it in the other side. Five years after that, then had metastases to the liver, the lung, bone, Mm. kind of really sad situation. So, you know, it's hard because all I have is a baby case series of my dad and this close family Mm. friend (laughs) to compare, you know, that doesn't really hold up in the scientific research. But for me, it just, that to me just says like, I literally have plant-based nutrition and lifestyle medicine for my dad. I grew up with a dad instead of having a dad that, you know, five years later. So that would have made him what, like 35, got his second cancer at 40 metastasis. Most people aren't going to live another 25 years with metastatic cancer, which is where my dad is now in good health. So for me, yeah, it's a case study. People like to shrug off case studies, but I don't care because that's my dad. Mm. And it's, and it's no doubt inspired you, I guess, to 
become a doctor mm-hmm. and, and then to be a, a voice for this. How did that journey look for you? So you, you moved to Melbourne, mm-hmm. you said so you, you were looking to enroll in university at that mm-hmm. stage. Was that in medicine or what did that look like then? And how, how did you go from a career point of view from there to now being a, a resident physician in Loma Linda? Mm-hmm. So I had zero interest in medicine. I loved health and nutrition. I loved reading about nutrition. I've always been really passionate about nutrition. Where I grew up, it's quite a low socioeconomic area, zero exposure to medicine or like the typical, it's not always the case, but the typical medical doctor has medical family. It's very, very common. I had zero exposure to that. And the first person in my family to go to university. And so I didn't really have any interest in it. I wanted to be a dancer or an artist. I've always been more creative than, um, I've always been in like smart, but not necessarily interested in academic pursuits. Um, so that was kind of more my goal. And then as I got a little bit older, I was like, you know, I really, really care about nutrition. I'm going to be a journalist and I'm going to write about it. And I'm going to tell everyone about the power of plant-based. So that was what I first went into university for. Um, I went into journalism and I completed my, um, my board. Was that here in Melbourne? That was in Melbourne. Correct. I went to Monash. Okay. Um, I completed. Caulfield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I did Caulfield, Clayton, bit of both. I completed my entry exams for journalism so I could work as a journalist. Uh, and I really hated it. <laughs> I was like, this isn't what I want. I was getting assignments to write about things like the news that I didn't care about. And I actually started interviewing quite a few doctors on the side and I was trying to get just like private work to, to publish some of their articles. And I loved it. I was like, I love all these doctors. And then I realized I was like, well, I don't actually need to be a journalist. I need to be a doctor because this is what I want to write about. So kind of an obscure way to get in. So I tried to apply for medicine, but in Melbourne, you have to, uh, in order to get into undergraduate medicine, you have to be straight from high school. Um, And I wasn't, I had already done journalism. So my only option was to apply for graduate medical school. Unfortunately, because I did a Bachelor of Arts in journalism, I didn't have the prerequisite. So I needed physiology, human biology. I hadn't even done human biology in high school. That's how little interest I'd had in medicine. Um, That's inspiring though for anyone listening that (laughs) it it can be done. I I am a very, so my mom and I view it a different way. She thinks that everything goes wrong for me and then I figure out a way to make it right. But I just think I have a roundabout way of finding things. But it all worked out in the end. So I ended up enrolling. I did uh, a bachelor's of nutrition and exercise physiology because that's what I cared about. And then I was like, well, doing that, that's really interesting for me, but it will mean that I will get my prerequisites for medicine. So it was a pathway. Yeah, exactly. So I did. But that's a, that's what, how many years? Uh, yeah. That was three years. I went to Melbourne University and did a Bachelor of Biomedicine. Okay. And, and then, you're still working as a journalist while you're doing that? Um, No, I started working as a personal trainer, okay. actually, because that was, I, this is when I started to get into bodybuilding. And so I got my qualifications as a personal trainer. And so I was working as a personal trainer while I was there. I had a fitness job actually in the US. I've always wanted to move to California, but no real reason why, just loved it. So I was working like a fitness internship while doing my undergraduate um, because it was the US hours. It worked out really well because I would get home from university and be able to work all night. It was um, kind of like personal health coaching, personal training, that kind of thing. And then I worked in a gym as well. Okay. So that funded my way through undergraduate. And then... So to get into graduate medicine, you take the GAMSAT exams, um, which is really, really hard, <laughs> but studied and managed to get in. It was, I remember it was like the hardest exam I had ever done at that point. And I thought to myself, if I don't get into medicine, I'm going to pick a different career path because I'm never doing this exam ever again. But it all worked out. Um, and then I managed to get into graduate medicine at Monash. Yeah. Wow. So going into graduate medicine, mm-hmm. but having the understanding of 
preventative medicine, I guess mm-hmm. lifestyle medicine and then the role of nutrition. How did that course play out for you in terms of what they were teaching mm-hmm. um, and, and how that aligned with, I guess, your your view that you'd formed fairly early on about health and well-being? Yeah, I've heard so many doctors talk about this and I find it such an interesting perspective because because I went into medical school already knowing what I knew and what I wanted to practice as medicine. I found medical school amazing because it taught me the fundamentals of the human body, the physiology, the biochemistry. Like I'd mentioned, I'd never even learned the, I never even learned the muscles in the body. I knew them from the gym. So you're just soaking it up. Yeah. I was like, oh, and for me, I found it so interesting because I knew things like, like dad had said to me, for example, dairy increases IGF-1, which grows cancer. But then I would be at medical school and they're teaching me about IGF-1. I'm like, oh, I know this. Oh, it does all of this in the body. And it was so exciting for me that it didn't really matter that it wasn't specifically the focus that I wanted. It was teaching me everything else that I, uh, sorry, everything that I needed to know to enhance what I already knew. So that was really, really cool for me. Two other really important things. Um, I did a year at Cabrini in uh, Malvern. Actually, I think my grandmother's been there. Okay. Before, in and out kind of thing. Um, yeah. Grandma. She's good now. <laughs> awesome. But there's quite a lot of doctors there that are in plant-based. I think they're a little bit undercover because I've never heard them on podcasts or on YouTube or anything. But um, they fine gave, under the radar. They gave us lectures on like, you know, the World Health Organizations on red meat, um, cancer and red meat and all these kind of nutrition lectures, um, you know, the power of antioxidants. And I was like, well, this is cool. So that was really enjoyable. And then also I was at the Alfred and there's a few doctors there that are into it as well. One of the oncologists is like, so I actually had quite a lot. The second thing for me, obviously coming from a journalism background, I love written and spoken communication. Um, so I kind of, how do I word it? I used every assignment as an opportunity to learn more about plant-based nutrition and medicine. So if we had an assignment on diabetes, I would look at all the literature on diabetes and make my assignment plant-based. We have to do a lot of oral presentations to other medical students and often even faculty. I would make mine on plant-based nutrition. Um, I remember one of the biggest talks I gave at Box Hill Hospital, it was called, um, Should We Care What Our Patients Eat? And it was just a run through of the Adventist health studies and you know the main names that we all love and know and the main doctors and just presenting their main research. And it was really inspiring for me because a lot of people were like, I've never heard this before. Yeah, I, c- I can imagine also your peers right? <laughs> must have been also inspired by you having this, you know, other other viewpoint and, mm. and opinion of nutrition, right? Like what, what were your peers? Were your, your peers obviously knew what you ate. Were they looking at this research that you were sharing as well? Yeah. So I look, I'm not going to lie. I've always been known as like, you know, the crazy alternative hippie doctor, but I'm not. I'm medically trained. I'm traditional. I believe in a lot of the medical therapies, but I think that there is a big gap between lifestyle and medicine that like I enjoy being the bridge between. But yeah, there was definitely comments it's kind of an aside, but I was actually really, really sick in my first year of medical school. And I spent quite a lot of time doing raw vegan, like high fruit, high detox type patterns. So I was coming to medical school with, you know, 20 bananas in my bag and doing things like that. So I can see why my peers thought I was a little crazy. But what was cool is medical trained professionals are trained to be evidence-based and they're science minded and they you know we learn numbers so we learn things like cholesterol we learn things like blood pressure we learn things like body mass index so when you present a you know a randomized controlled trial that improves these objective numbers and is designed in a way that we're taught in epidemiology and statistics is considered a high quality study it's published in a journal like 
The Lancet, the British Medical Journal. When you're presenting this to medical people, they appreciate it. And they're like, wow, I've never seen this study before. Like, cool. Bringing light to something something different. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just like, you know, if you can objectively show someone a patient or a study that reduces, you know, let's go with blood pressure because it's an easy one to drop with lifestyle. They're like, oh, that's as good as a medication. That's cool. I never knew that. Who knew that? Yeah. So it's not necessarily that there's a resistance to it. It's it's just not necessarily part of the curriculum, all of that. I think that it, it can be hard and you definitely hear people talking about conspiracy theories and, you know, big pharma and look, don't get me wrong. Pharmaceuticals definitely try and infiltrate medicine as much as possible. So there's lunches, there's freebies, there's, you know, weekends away, there's conferences, there's training programs. They're definitely a huge influence. Do I think that doctors, you know, know the solution and are ignoring it? Like, you know, you hear things like the truth about cancer. I really don't think that doctors know. And I think that's the biggest thing. I think that given the evidence, given the education, they would practice yeah. it. Life- I guess inherently mm-hmm. though, if the course is, you know, you're talking about the pharmaceutical companies having mm-hmm. influence on 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 the course or having events and whatnot, if you're constantly hearing pharmaceutical, 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 mm-hmm. you know, anyone would begin to believe that that's, that is the answer and that, and, and not really be paying attention to things outside of it. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, there's a really good study on physicians that shows like whatever drug rep is written on their pen, there's something like 60 times more likely to prescribe that. So let's say, um, let's use an example of depression. So if I have a patient with depression, there's probably 10 drugs I can give them. But if my pen says mirtazapine, or I think it's sold as Avanza in Australia, I'm like 60% more likely to prescribe mm, Avanza for no mind. reason other than it's just in my mind, which is mind blowing. Like how many physicians do you see that has a pen that says apples or you know, bananas. Like, no, we don't, we don't see that. So that's a big, big part of it. But I really, I really do think that there is not resistance. I think that everyone goes into medicine wanting to help people. 100%. And I think they just don't know. Okay. So from, from medical school, Mm -hmm. you, you graduate, how do you then end up in Loma Linda doing what you're doing now? And, and what are you doing? What are you seeing clinically? What are you working on? So my first two years of medical school, loved them. Second two years, uh, that's when you are fully in. A, I was actually fully in a hospital from halfway through my first year, which is weird. Usually it's a two two year preclinical, two year clinical year uh, training program. Mine was a little bit different, but I loved Cabrini. I had a really great experience there. Um, my next two years became very typical hospital medicine, long hours, inpatient, just a lot of like how fast can I see the patient? I remember being, you know, mocked once in medical school. They were like, oh, you still have compassion. That's cute. Like really just a little bit grading. Wasn't the greatest experience of my life. Just wasn't, I didn't feel connected to my patients. I didn't feel like anything I was doing was helping. I remember often asking a lot of the other physicians, you know, what about the role of diet? And they're like, diet has nothing to do with disease. Like it was just very, I guess I was just feeling really burnt. I out. guess in a short window as well. Like if you're seeing mm. patients really quickly, yeah. it's ha- you know having the ability in that short space of time to be able to address lifestyle. Exactly, and like in Australia, in terms of an outpatient, like general practitioner visit, you're trained to have an eight minute turnaround on patients. So try getting out the history, the presenting complaint, a physical exam. And a solution. Is that from a, a commercial model point of view that the, the clinic needs to have X amount of people through in order to 
to be profitable. Now, because I haven't practiced here, I don't 100% know the rules. But what I recall from medical school is it was a 10-minute block for Medicare reimbursement. So in order to be able to see six patients per hour, that would get you the maximum reimbursement from Medicare. So yeah, let's go with the financial model. Yeah, well, it would be nice to see if that would somehow be able, that model could somehow change to allow for more time. Exactly, exactly. So I think that would make a huge part because you just don't have time to address lifestyle in in that level. And especially with, you know, a biggest part of patients with medical visits, it's super common to hear. I just, I, I didn't feel like my doctor listened. So if you're trying to, you know, if you want to bring up lifestyle, but they're going like, no, my wrist hurts, for example, and you're being like, yeah, you've got inflammation. You should eat an anti-inflammatory diet. They're like, but you haven't even like addressed my wrist pain. And it can be really hard and challenging to do that in a short time frame. Sure. And I mean, when you're, if you're telling people to change the way they eat and they have, have never heard that before, they're going to have so many questions mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. To, to be able to feel confident to walk away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see how challenging that is to do in a 10 minute window. Exactly. Exactly. I don't think it's not doable. I think that, you know, you could be trained for that, but it would involve a lot of pamphlets and throwing things at people and being like, please go look at like nutritionfacts.org. <laughs> like, yeah. um, so kind of got a little bit burnt out with that. And then two really important things happened in my final year of medical school. So just before my final year, I went to PBNHC or the international, now I've got to remember, plant-based nutritional healthcare conference, the one by Scott Stoll, who's speaking here as well. Um, I went there, I saw it on the internet and I was like, this looks really cool. So I went there. I met a lot of people from Australia, Jenny, Malcolm, uh, Helene, Alphonse, and was mind blown. I remember just sitting there listening to every presentation and was like, all these people believe the same thing as me. I'm not crazy anymore. Like I was just like, I have found my people. And it was even more than I'd ever heard because I'd heard it from my dad. I'd heard it from research, but I'd never heard it from other medical professionals in that level of depth. I was like, they're doing research in what I believe in. They're curing heart disease. That was kind of my real exposure to other diseases other than cancer and just generalized well-being. And so that was just mind-blowing. And then the one talk that really got me, I heard Dr. Alan Goldhammer of True North speak. And coming from a medical background, what he presented, the results he was getting with patients were beyond anything I had ever seen to the point I was really skeptical. A perfect example, going back to what we're saying with hypertension, he was dropping at 40 to 60 points uh, or millimeters of mercury in patients best medical care on like five medications, I'd seen about 20 to 30 points drop, unless we're talking IV hydralazine or something in the hospital, but oral medications, you know, maybe 30 or, you know, 20, 30 points. And he's doing 40 or 50 with a plant-based diet and water fasting. And the whole concept of water fasting was like, it just sounded downright dangerous to me. I knew of juice fasting because my dad did a lot of that, but water fasting was just next level. I was like, surely people just die. Like, how are you even doing this? And so I got home that night and I sent him an email and I was like, Hey, like I'm a medical student. I'm totally skeptical of what you're doing. It sounds downright dangerous. Can I come to your clinic? And he was like, yeah, we do an internship, come whatever you like. And so I thought about coming over the summer holidays, but in my final year of medical school, we had a six week elective block. So I actually applied and my university said, well, as long as there's a medical doctor there, you can go. So I contacted Dr. Michael Clapper, who was still working then. And I was like, hey, like you're one of my biggest idols in the entire world. Can I come work with you? And I was like, yeah, sure. Come. Incredible. So, and I, yeah, to this day, I'm still surprised that my medical school approved it because, but they said any elective with a medical doctor you can go to. So I upped my bags and I went to True North for uh, six weeks. I actually ended up saying for eight weeks. And where's True North based? It is in Northern California. 
in Santa Rosa. It is a medically supervised water fasting and whole food plant-based salt oil sugar-free nutritional intervention for prevention, treatment, all range of people. When I was there, I saw people from a totally healthy 21-year-old there to celebrate her birthday to people that have basically been given a death sentence and have no other choice. So huge variety of people. So I went there for, I ended up extending it for eight weeks. I worked as an intern there for six weeks and then I shadowed Dr. Clapper for a further two weeks in his clinic. And It was so mind-blowing that I did not want to come back to medical school. I spoke to Dr. Goldhammer and was like, you know, can I just stay? Like, I am a nutritionist. Can I just stay here and be a nutritionist? Like, can I just work as an intern forever? He was like, no, you're an idiot. You're going to be a medical doctor. We need more medical doctors that are doing this. He's like, there's just not enough. He's like, go finish your degree, then get a residency, finish your residency, and then go out there and do this. So I was like, I don't want to do any of the residencies. I don't believe in any of them. He said to me, have you heard of Loma Linda? And I was like, oh, where the Adventist studies are from. He was like, yeah, they do a residency in preventive medicine and lifestyle medicine. So I remember going back to my room and I Googled it and I found it. And I was like, oh, this wow, is this is me. I was just reading through it. And I was like, there's a residency for me. Um, and surprisingly, I actually emailed them and they replied that day because I was like, hey, I'm in Cal- I was in Cal- like Northern California at the time, but I still had an extra week of vacation from medical school. And I was like, I have this week off. Can I come and visit? And they were like, sure, come to our Friday didactic classes and meet all the residents. So I flew my way to Loma Linda straight from True North, met with all the people, loved everyone, loved everything about it. And then basically went into mission, get into the United States. Incredible. So for anyone not familiar with that, it's kind of an ordeal. That must have been a big (laughs) What did you actually need to do to get in there? The biggest part of it, you have to take what's called the assimilies or step exams. These are nine-hour exams. You have to take three of them before you can apply for medical medical residency training or graduate medical education in the United States. So were you pulling some long nights there? I basically started studying July through December. I don't really remember much of that time other than waking up, consuming books, going to medical school, consuming books and going to bed. My husband says I was a lovely person to live with at that time. Uh, and he did not want to hear a single thing about the step exams the day that I finished them, but was supportive, whatever. But yeah, so that was very, very challenging. One of those exams had to also be taken in Los Angeles. You can't take the third one, uh, which is your practical. You have to take it in Los Angeles. So I had to fly back to Los Angeles as well. I had to fly back to Los Angeles for my uh, graduate, uh, sorry, for my residency interviews. Must have been quite nerve wracking, like stressful for you knowing that this was the residency that you had your heart set on? So probably the most stressful part of it. And in hindsight, I can see where everyone came from. Everyone told me I was totally crazy because the way that internship in Australia works is you can only defer once. And if you ever start your internship and stop it for not a good reason, you actually can't reapply. So I was kind of taking a risk. So every every graduate in Australia, at least the time I graduate, is guaranteed a internship in the state that they graduate. So I had a guaranteed job in Melbourne because I graduated in Melbourne. Um, so in July, I had to say, no, I defer. So that was my one defer. So I could have started in January, but I knew that if I got the job, I would quit. And then if anything went wrong, I wouldn't have a backup plan. So I thought I'll defer. If I don't get into the US, I'll take a year off and then decide what I want to do. So I had to defer in July, 
but I wouldn't find out if I got the job in uh, Loma Linda until March. So I was basically in limbo from July to March. And of course, January through March, especially because everyone else had started working and I have no source of income and everyone's going, you're crazy. You don't even know if you have a job. You're planning to move to the United States. But Fortunately, I managed to do what's called match, which is the way that you go through your residency in the US. And I matched to my number one choice at Loma Linda. There you go. So, Rest is history. Now tell me, basically. tell me what it's been like working in Loma Linda. Mm-hmm. I think it would be great to do an overview of Blue Zones, mm-hmm. Loma Linda being one of them. Mm-hmm. And we sort of spoke, I guess, about the perfect, you know, randomized controlled trial mm-hmm. that is that has being studied by looking at this population. Mm-hmm. But what have you noticed? There are certainly obviously people that that you see or live in that area that are not part of the Adventist. So mm-hmm. what are the differences that you're seeing? If you can take us through that, that'd be great. And then let's jump into the AHS studies and what they found. Okay, sure thing. So Loma Linda itself, the blue zone, as you were saying. So that probably most popularized by uh, the book by Dan Butner. I think he looks at six different blue zones in the world. Blue zones being uh, the places in the world that have the most centenarians or people living to over 100. And probably the most important part is they're not just living to 100. They're living in good health until 100. You know, Modern medicine is pretty good at keeping people alive, but the difference is they are thriving until they are in their hundreds. Great example being Dr. Wareham that just passed away that was one of the surgeons at Loma Linda. He passed away at 103. I think he was actively working Mm. into his late 90s. And for a man, that's huge, right? Yeah. And that's not, well, the average life expectancy for a male, I think is 82 so huge to be working beyond when most people die in great health. He actually lived around the corner from where I currently live and he lives on the steepest hill that is near me. It, like I find it hard to walk up and he would, I would see him watering his garden and actively gardening until, you know, he was in his late so Very much living proof. Just crazy. Really, really inspiring. And he was um, a big promoter of telling his surgical patients to go plant-based because of the evidence, which is just remarkable. But going back to the blue zone, so living in good health, and they kind of identified key features of why on the lines of nutrition, a lot of the ones in in Loma Linda are a plant-based diet, lots of whole grains, lots of soy foods, lots of fruits and vegetables, you know, minimal meat, even in the 50% that I was talking about that do consume animal products, the average amount is only 4% of the di- of the diet with about 10% from dairy. So dramatically less than the sort of the standard American diet, which I think is about 60% meat and dairy foods, and then maybe 40% processed foods and not much else. So just a dramatic difference, even in the meat eating population. So then to get such dramatic differences in the plant-based eaters is kind of crazy because you're already Already a healthy group. They're already- A healthier group from the standard. Exactly. They're already considered health conscious and they're doing all the other healthy behaviors. You know, they're not smoking, not drinking, not having caffeine, regularly uh, physical activity and good social, spiritual, um, you know, family, friend connections, all those other aspects of good health. So it's just crazy that then just stopping- the small amount of meat and dairy really that they're consuming then brings such dramatic health benefits that we see in the what, what, health what, studies. What do they show? What are those benefits when you move from an already healthy lifestyle, which just has a small amount of animal products, mm-hmm. and then you look at the Adventists who have no animal products in their diet, what is the improvement that they see? Overall, like all-cause mortality, big reductions. And again, every almost not every single 
disease that you look at is stepwise, but the majority are stepwise. What affects the stepwise is occasionally there's kind of a flip between like vegetarian, pescatarian kind of. So by stepwise, you mean omnivore to like semi-vegetarian, pescatarian, vegetarian, yeah. uh, vegan. So they do omnivore, which is just whatever. Semi-vegetarian is meat less than three times a week. Pescatarian is consuming uh, eggs, dairy, and fish, but nothing else. Then you have vegetarian, which consumes dairy and eggs, like lacto-ovo. Some of them split them, but most of the time it's lacto-ovo. And then you have fully plant-based or vegan, um, which is no animal products whatsoever. And in these zones, that vegan diet is a predominantly like whole food, not a processed food vegan diet or what, what uh, are they consuming? Yeah. Um, so looking at the main studies, it's almost about 50% of the diet is fruits and vegetables. Then you're looking at about... 12 to 20% actually soy foods. They do eat an awful lot of mock meats. There is actually at least three brands of Loma Linda mock meat that I'm aware of or soy-based meat products. They have everything from scallops to meat products because growing up as a, a you know a plant-based eater, I don't even know I like I don't even know what some meat products are, but they have a vegan version of it. So I think that is a big proportion of the diet, but then the rest of it does focus, like I said, at least 50% fruits and vegetables, big proportion of whole grains, lots of beans. So you walk in the Loma Linda market and it's filled with bulk bins. It's, you know, all the whole grains, the rices, the quinoa, the millet, the buckwheat. Then you have a huge amount of beans and all the, you know, dried beans, canned beans. And then, yeah, there's an aisle of their mock meats. And then the rest of it is just all fresh fruit and vegetables. There's lots of farmers markets, real locals, things like that. There's bread. There's not an awful lot of junk food, surprisingly, or processed food in their market. And I presume that most people shop there. So I would I would guess that it's significantly so It's not necessarily lower. Dr. Gregor's daily dozen, <laughs> but it's close. Uh-huh. And do you ever think about that and think, okay, I wonder how people would fare in a study that mm-hmm. were sticking to a completely mm-hmm. whole food diet. The flip side of that is that potentially what they're doing is something that's very easy to adhere to. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably, like you say, I think it's just so easy. And that's why like I know uh, Dr. Luke Wilson yesterday was talking about the power of community. And I definitely see that in Loma Linda. It's cultural. It's easy. So the hospital itself is entirely vegetarian with a lot of completely plant-based and actually even whole food plant-based options available in the hospital. And that also applies to the cafeteria. So where does every resident eat in the cafeteria and the free food that we get at the hospital? So automatically your entire staff is now vegetarian, predominantly plant-based. So you can just see the power of culture. And like you say, taking it a step back from whole food plant-based say, it's so much more acceptable. You know, they're getting a bean and rice burrito, which is basically the same as a bean and cheese burrito. You know what I mean? Like it's not a dramatic step, but going from, so like, I'm trying to think of other examples that would, you know, getting a mock chicken and salad sandwich is really the same as getting a chicken and salad sandwich to them. There's no real shift. And because that's all available and it's easy and convenient, that's what they do. So I think that's a big part is that it's just so much more sustainable and easy. Uh, well, I, oh, sorry. No, I was just, just quickly, yeah. sorry to cut you off. No, there, always. But I'm just interested in the the mentality. So you're talking mm. about people, it's it's easy to shift. Mm-hmm. They're, they're a faith-based group. Mm-hmm. Why, why are some completely eliminating animal products? What does that mean to them? Is it from a health perspective? Mm-hmm. Is it a karma, religious thing? Mm. 
My Look, I'm definitely not going to pretend to be an expert in Seventh-day Adventist faith, but I've definitely learned a lot about it from being there. And to the best of my understanding, uh, Ellen G. White is one of the main founders of the Seventh-day Adventist community. And she talks a lot about the body as the temple and nourishing the body and basically avoiding animal products. There's some of that uh, around temperament of the person, anger, a lot of it is health, just creating a healthy temple to house your spirit, I guess. Okay. So these people that you're coming across in the community, I guess, are very, would you say they're very much aware that the way that they're living is a healthier lifestyle to a standard American lifestyle? Oh, completely. And I like the biggest thing that makes it work at Loma Linda, I feel as a, like as a professional working there is that the majority of the staff are on the same page that prevention and optimizing your health is as important, if not more important than medical treatment. And that's all the way through the staff from people that you wouldn't typically think like say a surgeon, even they're saying, Hey, you want to recover better. You need to eat better. I worked with this one surgeon that every time she walked in a patient room and saw junk food, would just throw it straight in the bin. She's like, what are you eating? You're not going to recover. So it's just like that generalized cultural belief of the importance. On the top down. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And what's happening sort of, you know, adjacent to it, is there suburbs where people are not following (laughs) this lifestyle and can you sort of, is there a tangible difference, I guess, when people are presenting to you in the clinic where you can almost just by talking to them very quickly and looking at them, you know, mm-hmm. work out their lifestyle? So a big part of, and one thing I actually really, really like about Loma Linda being faith-based is there's a lot of focus on mission work and helping underserved communities. And, you know, their motto is make man whole, and that applies to everyone. It's whole person care no matter where you come from, who you are, what your social economic status is, what your level of education is, everyone deserves quality medical care and deserves an optimal healthy life. So across the train tracks right next to Loma Linda, and I'm talking a good five minute walk from the hospital, you cross into San Bernardino, which is super sad. One of the poorest, most violent crime neighborhood in the entire of the United States. And it's just mind blowing that it's so close to this mecca of health, I couldn't find the exact numbers. I was looking for my talk, but I believe the average life expectancy in San Bernardino is 54. Now we're comparing that to in your 90s. So Loma Linda has a 10-year extra life expectancy to the average US citizen. And then we're chopping off 30 years, a five-minute walk across the train tracks. It's mind-blowing. And as I was going back to the mission and faith-based work, our main community uh, clinic, which is where I do the majority of my primary care or in Australia known as like general practitioner. So family medicine residents, which is half of my specialty, we are kind of an intermediate between a general physician in Australia and a general practitioner. So I do both inpatient in the hospital and outpatient in clinic work. So the clinic that I predominantly work with is smack bang in the middle of San Bernardino. And it stands out like a sore thumb. It is a brand new, beautiful building. It's all like big glass windows, lots of plants. There's a farmer's market, community gardens. It is beautiful. And it's because you shouldn't, you know, Loma Linda could have just bought an old rundown building and put doctors in there. You're still going to get patients. But just that belief that, you know, you deserve quality care. You deserve a brand new building. You deserve to be treated as an individual, not because of where you live. So we have our main clinic there. But to do the contrast, so if we compare, let's think of some statistics. So let's go with body mass index. Obesity is a huge problem worldwide, especially in the United States. I'm pretty sure they still lead the world. In 
Loma Linda in the Adventist Health Studies, your average uh, plant-based eater has a body mass index of 24, which is within the healthy weight range. They're actually the only group that fell within the healthy weight range. Vegetarians are just slightly overweight, 25, 26, and it goes again stepwise from which there. Which is a, an increased risk for a number of, of chronic diseases. Basically everything. everything. Yeah. You know, being it, it, it can be difficult because there's a lot of movement towards body acceptance, fat shaming, and I'm very mindful of that in my practice. I would especially, you know, not being sexist, but especially with women, there is a huge stigma of being overweight. And it's not about judgmental or, you know, even anything to do with appearance, but being obese in itself, carrying excess body fat is a pro-inflammatory state. Inflammatory, basically high levels of inflammation cause almost every disease that we know of. So it's got nothing to do with what you look like or whether you can look hot in a bikini. This is literally the same as smoking or the same as drinking to excess. There's so so much, there's a, there's a much more deeper meaning behind losing weight than exactly. just the vanity aspect. It has nothing to do with that from a medical perspective. It has to do with preventing disease. But on the flip side, as I was saying, so we're looking at, let's go with all the plant-based eaters that I see in Loma Linda. They're all a healthy weight or just a little bit over. The average BMI at SAC clinic, which is the one in San Bernardino, is 46. That is my average patient. Wow. The average body mass. And just, just down the road. Keeping in mind that over 35 is considered morbid obesity. So now in the United States, we have classes of morbid obesity. We have class one, class two, and class three, because that's just that next level. So I imagine that their food compared to your Adventist patients, uh, sorry, I imagine their mentality regarding food mm-hmm. compared to the Adventist patients that you're seeing is completely different. A lot of it comes from poverty which is, it's just, it's heartbreaking really because slightly different to Australia is there is so much fast food and fast food is so cheap in the United States. And it is, there is an educational barrier because like, you know, we know as plant-based eaters, rice and beans are dirt cheap. But when you're working 16 hours a day, commuting three hours a day back and forth to Los Angeles to work, um, when do you have time to prep food? You're hungry, you're tired, you're stressed, and you can save time by going through a drive-through and getting a dollar menu of a hot pleasure trap, happy dopamine inducing. It's enticing. There is so much, like it is not just money. Like money is one of it, time, stress. And a lot of these people that come, there's not much happiness in their life. And food can bring that to a lot of people. I'm not supporting it. I'm not saying it's okay, but that's the reality. An addiction and associated with it a dopamine release mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yeah, essentially happiness. Mm-hmm. Have you looked at, or has anyone looked at this population of in San Bernardino mm-hmm. and looked at the disposable income that they do have? Mm. And if they were to buy plant-based foods, what could they buy? Like, is it actually achievable? For mm-hmm. So I actually have done this and I have a little PowerPoint presentation that I show my patients, which is comparing eating three meals a day at the dollar menu. So $3 budget a day and going to, so we have uh, like Walmart, Costco, dollar store. We actually have dollar stores where you can buy fruits and vegetables for a dollar. And I have created a menu on, it was a $21 a week budget of a whole food plant-based diet. And I give them that handout and tell them exactly what to buy from the supermarkets. Wow, that's incredible. Is that a resource that's online? Not yet. (laughs) I probably should put it on. So I am this person that has a bazillion things kind of like half written and a website with one article on it, which I really need to update. I'll get there. (laughs) At some point, point I will get a copy and share it with the listeners. Yeah, awesome. I'd I'd appreciate that. I just, that, that honestly, like stemming on from that is, has been amazing motivation for me 
to work at the SAC clinic because I can see that when they adopt it, they get the exact same benefits as anyone else. So it takes away that idea that plant-based diet or veganism is expensive, that you have to buy, you know, superfoods, like going and buying, I don't know, $25 chlorella or whatever it is. You don't have to do that. You can literally go to the dollar store, buy the cheapest frozen fruits and vegetables there is, the cheapest bulk rice, the cheapest dried beans, and get rid of your diabetes. Lose, you know, lose the excess body weight, get rid of your diabetes, recover from strokes, get rid of endometriosis. Prevent future cancers. There's just so much benefit. And I'm seeing that day in, day out for those that are open to doing something a little different. Are are many of them open to it? Are, are many of them resistant? What, what do you find when you are speaking to them about their dietary intake and choices? I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but one of the benefits of being in a lower socioeconomic perspective, living under the poverty line, is um, you can't afford the copay of your medications or your medical visits. So it's actually really motivating to have another option that is cheap. So I can spin it in terms of, you know, this medication that you're taking has a $20 copay for your hypertension. If you stop eating salt, that's an extra $20 a month that's going to go in your back pocket because I'm going to be able to take you off this medication. You know, your Lantus that you're paying $40 a month, this is an insulin, you know, your $40 a month copay, we can take you off that if you change your diet. And then you're going to have $40 in your pocket as well. And considering the budget for a lot of these people, their expendable income for food is, you know, $20, $30 a week. $40 a month can be life-changing for these people. 100%. And I mean, they're getting the the added benefit is just being empowered to take control of the health, not rely on the pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. and understanding, you know, probably for the first time in their life, the connection between what their, their choice and what they're putting in their mouth and their health. Exactly. Exactly. I I love the term empowered and I think I probably overuse it, but my biggest thing is, you know, it can be so, let me share a story with you that will explain um, where I'm going. Two years ago, just before I started my residency, I went to India and got typhoid. Stupid. Um, Horrible experience. I was in hospital in India and it was frightening. I ended up having to come back to Australia for medical treatment. And it really gave me appreciation of being a patient because I had zero control over everything. And it was frightening. I had no idea. You know, it it didn't click to me that you're not usually told what medication is going through your IV. You're not told what's going into your body. You don't know what time people are coming. You know, you're hungry. There's no food. I was so weak. I couldn't walk. I had to like buzz someone to take me to the bathroom, you know, and you'd have to wait. And it was just, there's just no power. There's no control. You lose everything when you're in hospital. So on the flip side of what we were saying, being able to be like, you're not a slave to coming and seeing your doctor. You can be empowered and take control of your own health. Not, you know, typhoid is a perfect example, kind of hard to prevent stuff like that with lifestyle. But knowing that, you know, like we say, 80, 90% of all disease is related to lifestyle. That's huge. That means like, if you think of your whole life, lifespan, 90% of the times you're going to get sick are going to be eliminated. You're only going to have say 10, 10% or less. Like that's so inspiring and empowering to patients. I think it's like a huge motivation for me to be like, I have so much control over my own health and future 
over what a pleasurable bite of food or, you know, ease convenience. Like, no, I'm going to put in the effort. I'm going to get up and, you know, do some physical activity. I'm going to make healthier choices when I go shopping because that to me represents what I'm seeing in the Loma Linda patients of being 90 and, you know, in good health. I gave a really good example as a huge contrast to what we're just talking about in my talk yesterday. It is not uncommon to have a patient come to my clinic. They're 92. Their chief complaint or reason for their visit to the, to the, to the clinic is they're there for their annual physical. Their medical history is that they gave birth in Loma Linda Hospital 60 years ago. That's the only time they've ever been hospitalized. They're on no medications and their favorite thing to do is hang out with their great-grandchildren and go to the gym. Like, wow. So getting 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 old and associating that with disease and cancer mm-hmm. is not is not the way they think. You know, we see people on the flip side in the hospital that are fifty four, and you know, I'm referring them to palliative care. It's just such mm. a stark. Well, I think comparison. a lot of people in, in you know proper, I guess, Western population mm-hmm. with a Western population mentality just assume that it's part of getting old, having a heart attack, having a stroke, or having a cancer, it's inevitable. One of those is gonna is gonna kill me at some stage. Exactly. I remember meeting, actually, the the girl I mentioned that was at True North for her 21st birthday. She said to me, she was like, you know, until I found out about this lifestyle, I just kind of thought, you know, I wonder what disease I will get. And I think that's really common for a lot of people. You know, you just kind of think as you get older, like, oh, I wonder what I'm going to die from. Will it be heart disease? Will it be cancer? You know, everyone in my family has cancer. I know that I'll probably get it one day. And it's like, I think that, you know, you spoke to Neil Barnard yesterday and I'm sure he probably said his favorite line of, you know, genetics load the gun, lifestyle environment pulls the trigger. And I really do believe that. Like I know in my family, we have so much cancer. I know that my gun is loaded with cancer, but I'm going to do everything that I can to not pull that trigger. And I think that that is super empowering for people to really understand the limited role that genetics has in most diseases. Like you said earlier, there are people, unfortunately, we do have some genetics. I was listening to your talk with Dr. Robert Oswald talking about Tay-Sachs. Super, super, super sad. We still have some genetic levels, but knowing that so much of it is lifestyle is really, really, really exciting, I think. Knowing everything that you you know about the role of nutrition mm-hmm. and having lived firsthand in Loma Linda, you're seeing the populations in the Adventist group, you're seeing, you know, in San Bernardino, you mm. can see that and feel that, that contrast. What, what do you make of these other diets like the ketogenic diet or even, you know, paleo carnivore, which mm-hmm. just seem very much against where the science lies for longevity? Mm-hmm. Actually, it was kind of an interesting few months. I just recently came off a three-month stint. I was working at Kaiser Permanente in Fontana. I was working in the bariatric medicine department. So basically doing the evaluations and the uh, lifestyle program for people wanting to qualify for bariatric surgery. So we're talking either a body mass index of 45 plus or um, over 40 with other chronic medical conditions, sleep apnea, diabetes, uh, hypertension, things along that line. And obviously a lot of people coming have, you know, at least quote unquote, tried everything. And this recent surge in ketogenic diets, high meat, low carbohydrate diets has just been frightening from a medical perspective. I am not going to say it doesn't work for weight loss. It does. It's 
it's a condition of disease, really. Being in ketosis is what we see when people are extremely ill. There's nothing healthy about it. A diabetic in ketoacidosis is going to come into the hospital, usually the ICU. Like, having to go into intensive care because you're in ketosis, how this even possibly became a thing for health, I have zero idea. But the real obvious striking comparisons that we see is cholesterol. On people that I have seen following these high animal product diets, their cholesterol is through the roof. You know, I work in a different metric system in the US, so I'm talking 350, 400 cholesterol, which I think is like eight, nine, 10 in Australian numbers. You know, we want it less than five, preferably less. You know, Cuddle, Asselstein, Teach, Colin Campbell, they talk about your heart attack proof number of being less than 150 uh, for total cholesterol. I'm seeing people with double that. Like, that's frightening. And it's coming directly from their overconsumption of animal foods. And I have had the pleasure of working with people and politely saying you're, what you're doing is going to give you heart disease. You might be skinny, but you're still going to die. And getting them to, to think about a plant-based diet and just watching the cholesterol fall off far more aggressive than I've seen with medical treatment and way faster than I'd expect. You know, you often hear doctors joking about it and people telling, especially patients telling their stories that their doctor think it's a lab error. That's how fast you can drop your cholesterol. I've had people in six weeks halve their cholesterol, mm. like going, for, sorry, not halve, maybe drop 50 to 100 points in just a matter of six weeks by cutting out the meat and the dairy and blood pressure goes down dramatically. The weight loss is usually more dramatic after that. So what gets people really excited about a low-carbohydrate diet is we hold about eight pounds or four kilograms of glycogen. So once you lose that, and then every gram of glycogen can hold up to four grams of water. That's a ton of weight loss initially. Like, But it's you, not true weight loss. No, it's just a, your store of your glucose. Of course not. And so if, you're, if you want to do any type of athletic pursuit, you have zero energy or motivation or mm. any way to even really incorporate your muscles. So that's going to take away a huge part. Physical activity is essential to maintaining a healthy body weight um, within reason. Um, and then we're talking about losing all this water weight. So it, the initial part of it is super motivating and that doesn't happen with a plant-based diet. But what you see is a very rapid uh, stagnation or plateau of weight loss on these other diets. They might lose four to eight kilograms and then nothing really. And in the meantime, their blood pressure is going up, mm. their inflammation is going up, their chronic pain and is going up. adherence is difficult, right? Oh, you know, it's hard. I'm biased. I've never grown up eating meat. I couldn't imagine eating the diets that they come to me. And the portions are so small. I feel like I would be so hungry. Like, again, coming from growing up plant-based, I've always eaten dramatically more than anyone seems to know where it goes in my body. And I agree. Sometimes I'm like, I really don't know how my stomach fits this much food. Um, You know, I see it. it's like, oh, two eggs and a coffee with butter in it for breakfast. Like how that even vaguely became an idea for health, I have zero idea. Um, But yeah, like I was saying, not only is their medical health getting worse, the weight loss doesn't continue in most cases, or they start to feel awful, nauseated, um, low energy, just anemia, a million, th- like vitamin D gets really low. Just a lot of markers just don't add up to any recognition of health. And like I said, in those that then do transition, weight loss starts again. They start to feel better. All their um, biochemical markers and laboratory results get better. You, they're just incomparable. And I'm yet to find any convincing evidence of why you would go for any other diet other than moving towards a plant predominant diet. Well said. <laughs> if, if, if someone listening has hypertension, diabetes, mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease, or pre-diabetes or any other chronic disease, or even 
just wants to reduce their chance of developing these diseases. Mm-hmm. What are your sort of top tips for anyone who's wanting to transition to a fully or predominantly plant-based lifestyle? Look, I think that it, it's all well and good to have, you know, nutritional tips. I can I can give you nutritional tips to the cows come home, you know, start with your milk. It's a great one to start with. What what plant-based option can you do? You know, what what plant-based foods are you already eating? You know, there's so many people that say to me, I've never eaten anything vegan. I'm like, you've never eaten an apple? Have you ever had a slice of bread? What about pasta? Have you ever tried any of these things? And they look at you like you're crazy. The amount of people that have said to me, I didn't know pasta was plant-based. What did you think your pasta was made from? It's whole wheat. So kind of starting from those are really good. But before I go into that detail, I think the most important thing that is always underlooked is reasons why internal motivation, cultural change, life, you know. Having some purpose. The understanding that part of it, I feel is so much more important than knowing what to do. Because I think deep down, everyone at least once educated knows what to do. And I like to use the example of smoking. I have never met a smoker that thinks it's good for them ever. No one says this is great for my health. They might underestimate the harmful uh, the harmfulness of it, but deep down they know it's bad for them and deep down they know they should quit. So why don't they? There's all this other reasons why, whether they are... I think a lot of food that ties into tobacco is self-medication. There are underlying psychosocial, mental health, depression that they are treating with food. Food we know releases dopamine. Food, especially your high caloric, salt-laden, sugar-laden, oil-laden, processed, high chemical food, it's a drug. It's not. I love the term. I think it's Michael Pollan that uses food-like product. It is. It is not food and that should not be consumed. It is a drug that you are using to treat yourself. So that's a huge part of it. So if you think about that, like any drug user or substance user, you take that away and you undress a whole host of issues that you've never dealt with. You've just treated with food. So that in itself can be huge. So the amount of in in the SAC clinic, we have integrated behavioral health or psychological, and I send everyone that has a chronic disease to them because there's always, always motivational barriers and emotional reasons. And the amount of people that have chronic health problems and adverse childhood events or previous trauma is studied and it's humongous. Your risk of disease after having some kind of psychological event is ginormous. So that's the biggest part of it. Like you have to be mentally healthy as well. Social support is huge. You know, think about the time when you're hungry and you walk past, say, a bakery that's baking delicious smelling cakes. It's really hard to walk past that door. If you're coming home every day and having to cook the foods that are not promoting to your health for your spouse or your children or, you know, your family, that's hard. And it's a constant reminder of what you're trying to get away from. Exactly. And you're focusing on what you can't have rather than what this is going to bring you. What So it's really trying you know, if you can't change others in your life, because unfortunately we can't change other people, if they are not on board, it's finding support elsewhere, whether that's a support group, whether that is your doctor, whoever that is that can support you and finding ways to make it work for you. I love there's a growing, growing, growing thing of like potlucks and plant-based meetups and just finding your people that you can connect with. Yeah, exactly. You know, I definitely encourage people to change their home environment, but we can never change other people, unfortunately. So that's a huge, huge part of it. And then going back to the more practical tips that you were talking about, it's creating, I love Andrew Davies' term of new normal. It is creating your new normal. So 
whatever you were used, you know, most people are creatures of habits. Most of us eat fairly similar breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's just creating new patterns. It's creating new ways of going to the supermarket or going to the farmer's market and buying different foods, you know, not walking down the meat aisle, not going and picking your milk or your cheese. It's creating your new way of, you know, you go to the produce section first and then you fill in the blanks with other other aisles with your whole grains and your legumes, your nuts and seeds. And it just becomes your normal way. And it, you know, like every habit, it takes a while to change. But I think once you build new habits, so I usually encourage people to start, you know, most people are not an overnight. I am an overnight person. So it can be hard for me to justify that with people, but I totally get most people are not. And small, slow, steady change is usually best for most. So it's just making one change thinking, okay, this week I'm going to buy soy milk instead of cow's milk. And just doing that for a while until that feels feeling it, get a feel for it. Like, okay, this is okay. And it's, I always like, I do a lot of motivational interviewing, behavioral change and setting goals. And I, my, my patients will laugh, but I always cut their goals in half because I want them to get on that bandwagon of success. So don't tell me you're going to have, you know, zero animals. Let's just say, let's have meat-free Mondays because then they come back in, I usually say the monthly for lifestyle. So they come back in four weeks and they're like, Hey, I haven't eaten meat for a single Monday awesome. Let's try Monday, Tuesday or Monday, Wednesday. And then they come back and it's just this positive Mm -hmm. thing. Whereas if you say, oh, I'm going to do nothing. And then Saturday night you fall into fried chicken, you feel bad and it's negative. It's negative reinforcement. And you get in that mindset of like, well, I've already blown it. I may as well have ice cream as well. And tomorrow morning I may as well have bacon and eggs. And it just skyrockets instead of moving on that positive, positive change and going from there. Yeah, I had Susie Cameron on uh-huh. the podcast. Oh, cool! And she she's written the book One uh, OMD, mm-hmm. which is one meal a day. Oh, wow! Which is another nice thing that someone can progress to. Mm. So small baby steps, and then you know whether it's replacing breakfast, lunch, or dinner, mm-hmm. and f- getting a feel for that, so mm-hmm. it doesn't doesn't feel there's not as much pressure, I guess, for mm. uh, preparation, you know, and it doesn't it's not as as confronting for some people. So mm-hmm. that can also be a nice thing for people to try. Mm, interesting. Outside of actually food, mm-hmm. I think a nice way to sort of finish this conversation is to also address some of the other pillars of health. Mm-hmm. And we've touched on a few, but it'd be nice in a summary that Blue Zones and Loma Linda Adventists are incorporating in, in yeah. their life. So what, what are some of the other sort of healthful practices that they do on a regular basis? Mm-hmm. Probably the, the most obvious one that always follows with nutrition is physical activity. Very active community. We're right in Loma Linda. There are, it's called Holder Crooks. Uh, it's one of the main places. And it's, I want to say a small, a small mountain, large hill. It's pretty steep. And you see people climbing that all day, every day. I try and do it as often as I can. And it's so beautiful. You end up with this beautiful view over the whole town. Um, But it's a good like hour, most of the walks, at least hour, 90 minute walk. And, you know, the age of some of the people you see up there, you're just like, wow. Walking past the houses, there's always someone in the garden, you know, walking around the garden. We have a big gym called the Drayson Center. They have water aerobics with these little old ladies pumping their little weights. And you see people in the gym that like, 
I get borderline nervous. I'm like, don't tell anyone I'm a doctor while I'm in this gym because they look like they could, you know, pass at any moment, but they're in good health. So like kind of joking, like I look at them and I'm like, your hair is completely white, but they look great. They're lifting weights. They're running on the treadmill. Um, They're walking around. It's a small town. So it's easily accessible by foot. Um, Lots of footpaths, lots of people riding their bikes, lots of, you know, they've got a good green bike strip on the road. Um, I think just moving, keeping physically active, you know, most of the doctors take the stairs at the hospital. I think it's 16 stories and most people do take the stairs, partly because the lift is so annoying because it stops at every level. <laughs> but, you know, people are just up and about and active. That would be a huge part. I don't, you know, a lot of the Blue Zone studies say that people don't specifically focus on exercise. It's more just being physically active throughout the day. And I would say that seems like a low level of low level of activity, you know, walking around, doing the home duties, doing the gardening, going for a walk. They're not just sitting down watching Netflix all day. I don't believe so. (laughs) (laughs) So that would be your first one. The faith base is huge. And I think that that ties into no matter what way you want to look at it, whether you are looking at the fact that the faith itself does promote healthy living. That's a big part of it, but also the community aspect and the cultural idea of health and everything being on the same page, you know, the supermarket selling the food that fits with the lifestyle, the hospitals, the same, just everyone is doing the same thing. And, you know, like you said, when you were asking me, what was it like when I was a teenager? No one wants to stand out. You don't want to be the one person being like, oh, no, I don't want that for lunch because it's different. Everyone's on the same page. Then, you know, we know a huge part of health is having people to support you. You know, if you are a bit sick, having someone that can take care of you, having someone to look after, you know, going on from that, the joys of laughing. We know things like that go into health, meditation practices, having a purpose. Um, a lot of people do mission work. Um, Loma Linda has strong ties to a lot of Adventist hospitals in Africa, going there and volunteering your time, giving back to the community, working in the SAC clinic. We have free drop-in clinics, community clinics, street clinics, where we go out there and help people. And I think that that makes, you know, it's not that you're doing it to feel good for yourself, but it does make you feel good. And I think that having a positive outlook and attitude and purpose in life really does help you live longer. You know, like you say, if you're falling into a depression and your life revolves around Netflix, what have you got to live for? Whereas if you can actively say that every day you are helping 10, 20 people improve their life, that really gives you a reason to wake up in the morning. I think another big aspect, it it, it isn't nutrition per se ties into it, but abstaining from alcohol and smoking is a huge part of it. People really underestimate alcohol. There was a big fuss when the World Health Organization put red meat as a carcinogen, so processed meat as a carcinogen and red meat as a probable carcinogen. If you read that list, alcohol is a known carcinogen. Known. Yet we drink it every day. Tobacco uh, and all the other uh, chemicals in cigarettes, benzene, cyclobenzenes, you know, the whole list of them, they're all on the list of known carcinogens. So abstaining from that is going to be really helpful as well. And I think a lot of people forget about other things on that list. A lot of the food is local. It's not processed. It doesn't have chemicals on it. Most of these chemicals, again, glyphosate, that huge case that just came out in California, known carcinogen. Like That's they're, crazy. They're avoid- Yeah. It's especially coming from Australia where like- Have, have you listened to Zach Bush on Rich Roll's podcast? Yes. Uh, it makes me want to cry. And he's um, Zach's just brought out that new documentary. Mm-hmm. I haven't watched it yet. Mm, I haven't either. Added it to the list. Yeah, yeah, it's bookmarked <laughs> um, for sure. Or did I watch it? Actually, I think I watched it on the plane. I can't remember. <laughs> I watched too many things. Anyway, I'll, yeah. I'll link that in the show notes. Yeah. I think it, it, I'll also put a link through to Dan Butner's book and, mm. and website where people can can read more about all of these sort of 
Pillars of Health if you're interested in doing so. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for it's having me. It's been very, very incredible to hear your story and pathway to now living in a blue zone <laughs> and very insightful to hear from a physician who is working with both people um, that are part of a blue zone and also people in the nearby community who are leading a different lifestyle and the differences that you're seeing from a health perspective. So thank you so much for shedding some light on that and your time today. No, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I always think it's amusing that people like listening to me rant, but appreciate it anytime. Yeah, thank you so much. So happy to be here. Hey friends, there we go. Isn't it just so great to hear from a doctor who has not only seen the power of a plant-based diet firsthand within her family, but also lives in one of the populations or areas of the world where people are living proof of a plant-based diet. Don't get me wrong, the omnivores in Loma Linda do far better than people eating the standard omnivorous diet. So we can learn a lot from everyone in that population. But to have studies showing the vegans have lower BMI and lower overall mortality compared to all other dietary frameworks in the population is very powerful. I personally think in the coming 30 years, as more and more studies come out with subjects who are eating a whole food plant-based diet, people who actually went vegan purely for health reasons, we're going to see even greater separation between health outcomes from a diet with animal products versus without. Also, I strongly suggest that you read the book Blue Zones, if you haven't, by Dan Butner. Food aside, there are some very important pillars he identified for longevity. Things like having a way to alleviate stress, regular low-level exercise, and having some type of purpose to wake up to. And don't forget, the common food shared by these blue zones is legumes. Yet another reason not to fall victim of the plant paradox. The healthiest populations thrive on legumes. Wow, lectins must be so bad. Okay, that's all from me, folks. I hope you found this episode interesting. If you did, myself and Renee would love to hear from you on social media. So please tag me in any feedback or leave a review on iTunes. See you in the next episode. Peace.